This evening's reading is from Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 15. Um, it can be paid, found on page 1113 in your church Bibles. That's Acts chapter 17, starting from verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas, in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is God's word. Thanks, Janelle. Good evening, everybody. My name is Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar. It's lovely to have you with us. It's been great to meet you afterwards. Um, before we um, get into it, let me just um, read some bands. I was about to say it's a... Yeah, none of you have seen the old, uh, the big red book, This Is Your Life. Yeah, anyway, that's a TV show that would date me. Back in the days of black and white television, there was a show, but um, anyway. Um, <laughs> we'll move on. I publish the bands of marriage between Morris Lee Chin Yap of St. Mary and Holy Trinity Bow with Bromley St. Leonard and Rebecca Elizabeth Rowden, also of St. Mary and Holy Trinity Bow with um, Bromley St. Leonard. This is the second time of asking. If any of you know any reason in law why they should not marry each other, you are to declare it now. Actually, legally, that's not quite right. You are to declare it. It doesn't have to be now. You can come and tell me afterwards. Right. Um, 
<laughs> Sorry, I'll get you. It's a legal thing. Um, <clears throat> anyway, right. Let's get on with it. Let's turn to Acts 17. Let me pray and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Lord God, we pray that you would help us as we look at this old account from far away to see the power of your spirit at work then. The same spirit is at work today, proclaiming the same gospel through the same lips of ordinary people. And so we pray that we are growing confidence of the Jesus we meet in these pages. Amen. How did uh, Europe become a Christian continent? Where pretty much every town, village, settlement you walk into in every country of Europe, pretty much, you'll find a church. How on earth did that come to happen? I think these days most of us are aware of the narrative that Europe is fast on its way to becoming the most secular continent on earth. I think there'll be fewer Christians in Europe than Antarctica. It might be an exaggeration. Uh, but it, it's, that's the, the big narrative is the, is the decline of Christianity in Europe. But how did it become a Christian continent in the first place? It's a question that's historically a very interesting question if you're into history and culture. But if you're a Christian, it's more than just interesting, it's a critical question. Because if we're not going to let pessimism suck all the energy out of our faith in this day, then it's hugely important that we understand by what power of God, by what means, humanly speaking, did the message of Jesus take over Europe before? And as we look at how Paul and his team brought the gospel, the message of Jesus to Europe at the beginning of the first century... My prayer is that Christians will grow in confidence that we can bring the same message to the same people at the beginning of the 21st century too. Uh, what we'll see is in Acts 17, the first half of Acts 17, we'll look at the second half next week, but in the first half we'll see what it is that the, the apostles did to win over the Roman Empire and then we'll also see a right and a wrong way to respond when the message of Jesus is proclaimed. And I hope that means that there'll be something here for all of us, whether you're a convinced Christian or just looking into these things. I really think there is something for all of us in this passage. Okay, just three points for you. Firstly, reasoning from Scripture about Jesus. First one, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So as we've seen, we're in the book of Acts, and Acts charts the spread of the movement of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the, the spread of Christianity, the spread of the Jesus revolution from its beginnings as a Jewish movement in Jerusalem to the point at which it's reached Rome. In other words, has spread throughout the known world. And Luke is, as we've seen, he emphasizes three things as he goes through his account. He, he shows that, look, the message of Jesus is credible. There's good reason to believe he died and he rose again. You can prove it from scripture as well. Secondly, it's good for people and it's good for society as a whole. And thirdly, that it, it's always messy the way it spreads. Nothing ever feels ideal. Vital, vital lessons for our day. So at this point, Paul and his team, if we look at the map, we'll see that Paul and his team, they're, um, they're traveling. They, if you see the red line at the top, they're, they're up in Macedonia and Thrace and they're traveling along the Ignatian Way, which is just below the Black Sea, which was the great artery road that linked Rome with her um, eastern colonies. 
And they're traveling west along the Ignatian Way. And they've come to the key city of Thessalonica and they've settled into their usual pattern of they proclaim the gospel in the synagogue, if there's a synagogue there. And I want to just show you two simple things from this first section. Their method and their focus. Their method is reasoned speech about Jesus. And their focus is Jesus' death and resurrection. Firstly, their method. We've seen throughout the Acts of the, that the apostles and actually all the Christians, what they did was they told people about Jesus. Yeah, that's what they did. That simple. Uh, sometimes they preached, like at Pentecost in Acts 2 or in Berea, as verse 13 tells us, they were preaching. That's authoritatively declaring the truth that Jesus Christ is the risen king and the savior of the universe. And sometimes they engage in debate and discussion a bit more back and forth. But the Jesus revolution spread by speaking about Jesus. It never, ever spread through the Roman Empire on the edge of the sword. No one was forced to convert by threat of violence. There were no Christian wars of conquest and expansion. There were no Christian armies. And neither did the the Jesus revolution spread through the use of political power by by law changes that made it culturally or financially beneficial for people to, to become Christians. The early Christians had no political power and very little wealth. No, Christianity spread as they spoke words, as they told people the good news about Jesus. Now, do you see here the emphasis is on the reasonable, rational, logical nature of what they did. As was his custom, verse 2, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now, the, uh, the words that are used emphasize what's going on. It is reasonable rational, logical. Reason is, a, a grammatically, it's the main verb and then explained, literally opened up and proved uh, are the two subverbs that, it, that expand on what he's doing. So the Roman Empire wasn't conquered by some mighty demagogue who could win over crowds. It was conquered by ordinary men and women just explaining that the Bible tells us that the Messiah would die and rise again, and and this Jesus is that Messiah. You you just don't need gimmicks when you have a truly brilliant product. It's it's Valentine's Day not so long ago, so there were lots of perfume adverts everywhere, and perfume adverts are ridiculous. You know nothing about the smell from watching a perfume advert, because they all kind of smell like nice, and so, well, well, you know, what, so what do you do? You have to, this is what you'll look like. If you, what, it's a spray. It makes you smell different. What makes you think you're going to look like them if you spray it? Or look at how people respond as you walk past, covered in it, as, as every eye sort of lustfully stares. You say, what is just... But they have to. They have to sell some kind of a, a lifestyle, um, paint an image of, a, of an ideal that you want to make you buy the product because there's millions of them and they're all pretty similar. Even the cheap ones, actually. There's very little difference. <laughs> you know, actually, I mean, you know, you know that they, uh, one, one perfume absolutely bombed in sales and the marketer said, you've just got to treble the price. And they did, and suddenly it started to sell because, oh, it's expensive, it must be good. But, 
It's very different if you've got a product that actually works. Like, really, I mean, smartphone protective covers, they don't protect your smartphone. We all know it. It doesn't matter how much you spend if, oh, you dropped it in the wrong way. What? My screen is in 15 pieces and it costs more than the phone to replace the screen. If you've got a smartphone cover that actually works, you don't need gimmicks. You don't need smoldering looks in the adverts. You don't need to pay for a celebrity endorsement. You just video it being dropped from the top of a building and sat on and dropped down the loo and all the things that people do. And say, hey, it still works. People will buy it. They don't need gimmicks when they're telling people about Jesus. Because he actually works. He's not a joke. He's not an idea. He's not a figment of imagination. He is really God. And he really died and he really rose. And so in Acts, we just see that's what they do. They tell people about Jesus. Now, sometimes there are miraculous healings. We'll see some pretty crazy things to our minds in Acts 18 in a few weeks' time. Sometimes those things happen. Always, always, they spoke about Jesus in reasoned, measured, logical terms. And as people turned from the religious beliefs they'd grown up with and, and turned away from the values that they've known and everybody in their culture knows, you see the power of the gospel displayed. That's what happens here in Thessalonica, according to verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. The method was just reasoned speech about Jesus. Didn't need any gimmicks. The second thing to notice is the focus of that message. The focus was the, do you see verse 3? The death and resurrection of Jesus. Explaining and proving the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Death and resurrection. Now, sometimes people ask, why are Christians so obsessed with Jesus' death? It's, it's not healthy. It, it's going to do funny things to you morally if you're just obsessed with death and, and someone being punished and, and all the gore and stuff. Why, why not give more emphasis to Jesus' moral teaching or, or the way that he heals sick people or the way that he champions the cause of the poor and the oppressed? Those would be great things to focus on. Well, they're absolutely They're true, so we must teach about them. But the heart of the Christian message is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's always been the case. It's not something that was developed later. If you read the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of the life and death of Jesus Christ, a third of them, a third of them focus on his death, his predictions of his death, and then the account of his dying. And when uh, when we read of Paul and the early apostles in the, most, in the earliest historical accounts of them spreading the message of Jesus, the thing they focus on relentlessly is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's an interesting phrase. The Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Why? Why does the death and resurrection of Jesus get such high billing from them? Well, because Jesus came to deal with the most fundamental human problem of all. 
A problem greater than economic poverty or poor political leadership or sickness or disease or lack of education or lack of technology or, or our need for, to find a wise moral framework. All those other things that we struggle with, all the other problems that we're aware of in the world are symptoms of the disease of sin. Sin is the cancer in every human heart that turns us away from God and others, as Ben has already told us, and makes us put me at the center of the universe. And the thing is, God is the source, the only source of life and of beauty and of truth and of justice and of love. And sin is to close the door on God in my life. Say, I'll work it out myself, thanks very much. The problem is that when we die, the door that we have closed will be locked forever. And we will find ourselves cut off from the only source of life and beauty and truth and justice and love for all eternity in an existence that can only be described as hell. Jesus had to die because it's the only way to deal with that problem by taking our place and by dying the death we deserve in our place, substituting himself on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me. And he was cut off from God, shut out and endured hell in our place. And he had to rise again because it's only if he rises again that you and I can share in the eternal life and hope and relationship with God that we desperately need. He is the Lord of all life. And as we put our trust in him, we share in that, our sins forgiven and our future eternally assured. There's been quite um, a recovery of interest in the moral framework of Christianity so as, uh, um, as we've already heard, Tom Holland's coming in um, and people like Tom Holland and Douglas Murray, uh, public intellectuals, I mean, Douglas Murray, definitely not. Tom Holland, who knows whether they are Christians. But they say, hey, look, whether you're a Christian or not, the ethical values of Jesus are hugely important. And they're undeniably right to point out that in the West, hey, look, hospitals, universal education, women's rights, care for the disabled, a belief in the human rights of all, all those things in the West have come undeniably directly from Christianity. But as interesting as it is, and as positive in one way as it is to hear people saying, hey, let's not bin our Christian heritage as a country, let's remember it. Adopting Christian values cannot save you from eternal judgment. Only a personal faith in the Jesus who died to take your judgment and rose to give you life, only a personal faith in him in his death and resurrection can and will save you. That's their method. This is how, the, this is how Europe became Christian. Their people reasoned from scripture about Jesus. What did it lead to? It led to irrational rioting and rejection. So some, as we heard in verse 4, responded positively to gospel preaching. But it turns out not all of them. Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. And so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. 
But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials. Now, as they dragged the Christians before the magistrates, you'll notice they charged them with two crimes. And the Christians are innocent of those crimes. And yet, and yet, ironically, in a deeper way than any of them understand, there is truth to what they say. Continue in verse 6. They were shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil and they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. They've caused trouble, literally, they've turned the world upside down. That's just not true. The apostles never sought to overturn the social order. They never encouraged a single riot. It is their opponents who've hired rent-a-mob and started a riot. The apostles' method was reason, debate, and discussion, proclaiming a a message of peace and love. But, But in a way far deeper than the rioters could have grasped, the message of the gospel really did turn the world upside down. This is the central argument that Tom Holland's going to be making when he comes on the 14th of March. It's what he wrote about in Dominion, if you've read his book. He he demonstrates that actually the the message of the apostles turned the entire Roman world upside down, on its head. It reversed the moral order of the Western world. He writes this, In a city famed for its wealth, Paul proclaimed, It's the low and despised in the world, mere nothings who rank first. Among a people who'd always celebrated the agon, the contest to be the best, he announced, God had chosen the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. In a world that took for granted the hierarchy of human chattels and their owners, he insisted the distinctions between slave and free, now that Christ himself had suffered the death of a slave, were of no more account than those between Greek and Jew. They did turn the world upside down. The second charge was that the Christians were defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, Jesus. That too is false. Jesus never came to replace an earthly ruler. He instructed his followers, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul taught, obey earthly authorities in Romans 13. charge was false. The the gospel's not a political message. And yet, again, there's a deeper truth. Jesus is indeed the king. That's what Messiah means. And to trust in Jesus is to change your most fundamental allegiance. It's to put obedience of Jesus ahead of allegiance to a political party or a nation or a family or even my deepest desires. Jesus becomes king over every part of my life. And so if there's a conflict between what Jesus says and what my family say or what my desires tell me, well, then he has to be the king. But the big thing I think to see here in this section is that the response of those who disagree is not to engage in reasoned debate. It's to start a riot and make false accusations. And we see it again and again as we go through Acts. Now, let's be honest. In our cultural moment, we are not going to face riots for inviting work colleagues to church or talking to people at university about the gospel. But if you seek to tell people about Jesus, you may well encounter responses that are unfair and deeply irrational. Don't be surprised. 
There was a, there was a very famous incident. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, stood on stage at the Reason Rally to give the keynote address at the Reason Rally in Washington, D.C. in 2012. And he gave this advice to secularists when they encounter people with Christian beliefs. Mock them. Ridicule them in public with contempt. So much for reason from the high priest of science. And if you've read The God Delusion, you'll recognize that wasn't a slip of the tongue or getting carried away in the heat of the moment. It was a deliberate strategy. And many of us will have experienced exactly that mockery. We don't find when friends or family disagree with our faith that they come with arguments. They come with insults too often. Don't be surprised if your careful, reasoned attempts to speak about Jesus are met by a mocking. Are you for real? Seriously, I didn't have you down as one of the Sky Fairy followers. Don't be surprised if you're misrepresented, insulted. Jesus, how can you be such a bigot? Do you think you're better than everyone, do you? Don't be surprised if your arguments are just not taken seriously. Don't be surprised if people who claim to be rational, sensible, reasonable, are anything but when it comes to dismissing the Christian faith. It's always been the way. Not with everyone, but with many. Don't be unsettled then. Don't be discouraged. And Christians, let us make sure we don't do this ourselves. Silly ideas and empty arguments should be exposed, sometimes forcefully. But don't ever resort to mockery in the place of argument. Don't ever belittle people for their views. The gospel is true, so it doesn't need our manipulation to win an argument. No one has ever been humiliated or mocked into believing in Jesus. Irrational rioting and rejection were the response of many in Thessalonica. Thirdly, though, more encouragingly, eager examination and acceptance. So Paul and Silas are are sent on to Berea, while the rest of the team stay on in Thessalonica to, to encourage the young church. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. The Bereans were of more noble character. That's not a class comment. It's not they knew which cutlery to use with the fish starter or when to wear a wing-collar shirt. It's it's saying their response to the gospel. Uh, When they heard the message, they engaged in serious examination and they put it to forensic study. They didn't start a riot, but also they didn't just blindly believe The right response was reasoned faith on the basis of evidence. They studied, they examined, they probed, they questioned, they interrogated it. They honour God in the message by studying his word to see if it matches what Paul is teaching. And they found that what Paul had told the Thessalonians, that the Messiah, the Saviour King, had to suffer and die before rising that that was the message of Scripture. Now, when they talk about Scriptures, obviously they're talking about the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible. That's all that they had at that point as Scripture. 
The New Testament was only just starting to be written. And the Old Testament was completed 400 years before Jesus hung on a cross. So how on earth did it show that the Savior had to die and rise? What is it that they saw that convinced them? Well, you could, you could lecture for weeks and weeks on this. I won't, don't worry. But uh, two words, promises, patterns, promises, patterns. There are lots of promises that Paul would have been able to take them to in the Old Testament about someone who would suffer to save the people. In fact, the very first promise of the Bible in the third chapter of the first book is about this. After the devil has come and has tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God and sin and misery and death have come into the world, God turns and says in judgment to the devil, personified as the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And listen, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15. The saviour, he promises, would suffer as he destroys evil. The Messiah, the saviour, would, would have to suffer in the destruction of evil. His heel would be struck as he crushed the serpent's head. And as you go through the rest of scripture, you find dozens of other promises that point to this Messiah. But to my mind, actually, the more significant thing is that the Bible is full, not just of promises, but of pattern. There is a pattern of salvation comes through a suffering saviour. Salvation comes through a suffering saviour again and again and again. It's there throughout. It's like a watermark almost on every page. There are so many people and so many incidents as you go through the Bible that fit this pattern that you just... It becomes this building picture that every time there's salvation, it does look like God's chosen one kind of goes down into a death-like experience before coming out in triumph. And, and that the victory costs them greatly. Now, um, I'm going to show you a brief clip where Bible teacher Tim Keller showed this very, very memorably. It's just a two-minute clip showing how there's this pattern that runs through the whole Old Testament. When you look at it, almost every character you see foreshadowed, patterned, hinted, this suffering saviour. We'll watch it now. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all, while God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. (laughs) Is that a type? See, that's not typology. It's an instinct. 
Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Throughout the Bible, this pattern of the suffering one who saves is finished in the Lord Jesus. Okay, so what? So what? As we wrap up. Two things, go and tell, come and see. Go and tell. Author Don Whitney cites a recent survey of Christians in their experience of sharing their faith. Apparently, nine out of ten times that Christians have an opportunity to talk about their faith, they come away feeling discouraged and like they've failed. It's not just you. (laughs) Isn't that good to hear? (laughs) To the Christians here, let me encourage you, it's always been like that. It's always been like that. There's always been mixed response. And we never quite feel like we've done a good enough job. But the same means which saw Europe turn from a pagan continent to a Christian one. They're available to us too. So don't be cowed and intimidated or apathetic and hopeless. The simple message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is still the hope that every human needs. And it's still the case that when you tell people, some will shrug. Some might get angry. Some might even mock, and some will want to know more. So keep going. Secondly, come and see. For those who are not followers of Jesus, be a Berean. Be a Berean. Come and see for yourself. Don't dismiss the message of Jesus without examining the evidence of the Bible. And look, if a friend brought you tonight, they would be delighted to read one of the eyewitness gospel accounts with you. They would love to, to read through one of the accounts of the life of Jesus with you and, and start to discuss some of your questions. Or you can join. We've just started a Christianity Explored course. We meet here on a Wednesday evening. Why not come and join us? It's a great opportunity just to, to actually work out what, is it, what does the Bible teach? Is this madness or can I put my trust in this Jesus who claims to have died for my sins and risen to give me life? Grab me afterwards. I'd love to welcome you to that course on Wednesday. There you go. I know the, the news tells us or oh, decline. The rest of the world's a lot more encouraging if you're a Christian. Um, and the truth is, when Paul went out with the gospel message in the first century, there were no church buildings. There was no Christian heritage. There were no Christian institutions or RE lessons at school to give him cultural points to hang on. But Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world. And as he proclaimed the death and resurrection, people put their trust in him. And the same thing is happening today. Just as many are ditching a a faith they never really owned, so many more are coming to know Jesus Christ as saviour. Around this city and all around this continent, There are little ordinary churches like this, slowly filling up week by week as people meet Jesus. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need political power. We've got the one product that works. 
So come and see and go and tell. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we, uh, we thank you for Acts 17. We thank you for these amazing accounts of this extraordinary um, event as the, as the message of Jesus exploded around the Roman world. We pray that you would give us confidence in our day that the, the simple message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is still the hope our world needs. Pray that as Christians we would not be fearful or pathetic or easily intimidated, but with joy and patience we would offer out the hope of salvation. And for those of us, Father, who are still working these things out, would you open our eyes to see the truth? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.